Mark chapter 3, verses 31 through 35. It says, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you uh, exactly under that name, that you are our Father. Lord, you are our Father in heaven. God, that you always desired since the foundation of the world to create a people who would be your family, who would look to you as Father, who would receive from your provision, who would be faithful in all that you ask. Lord, we also recognize that we've failed But Jesus has stood before you. Jesus has gone on our behalf. That Jesus has been faithful to the very end, doing all of the Father's will. And God, we believe that through what Jesus has accomplished, the Holy Spirit has invited us to not only participate, but to partake of the family of God. And so we come into this place, Lord, wondering what that looks like. We come into this place wondering what that means for the church to be a family. God, is it just some nice sentiment Or does it mean something for us? And so God, I pray that you would teach us today, that you would lead this time, that you would be glorified, and that we would be united as a family. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was uh, shocked by my wife's family when we first started dating. My wife came from an absolutely incredible family. Um, I remember one of the first times we ever hung out, we had kind of talked a little bit And before we ever went on our first official date, I remember calling her on the phone one day, it was probably Saturday or something like that, and asking her, hey, you know, we should should get together, we should hang out. I mean, I was smitten, you know, I was was already in love with this girl. And so we should hang out. And she said, well, you know, I'm going to my aunt and uncle's house today to help them set up for their anniversary party tomorrow. Do you want to come? And I said, no. (laughs) I do not want to go and meet your entire family and set up for an anniversary party. That doesn't sound like a lot of fun. And so I got off the phone, and listen, I was young and dumb, so it took me a full two minutes before I realized I'm an idiot. And so I called her back, and I said, you know, if you haven't left already, I'd I'd love to come with you. And so I drove to her house, picked her up and her sister, who was 16 at the time, and I'd never met her before. And now we're driving to Napomo to go set up for her aunt and uncle's anniversary party. And on the way there, my wife says, hey, I just have to let you know, my my uncle um, is a, one, he's a retired police officer, so he's going to do a full background check on you. (laughs) He did. Uh, Two, he has Lou Gehrig's disease, and he's completely paralyzed from the neck down. And so I'm driving there going, okay, how do I relate? How do I, like, I can't, like, how do I do this? And I'm, you know, nervous. And I I walked in and started meeting some of the family. And I walked in, I saw her uncle Mark, and he's sitting in his wheelchair. And I said, I said, hey, Mark, I'm Adam. Good to meet you. And I put my hand on his shoulder. And this man has never treated me as anything different than family for the rest of his life after that background check. (laughs) This family is so remarkable uh, so incredible that my, because now that I was family, my family was family. 
My mom was invited to things. They'd never, they'd never met me before. My siblings were invited to things. And it was overwhelming. Some of you may be sitting here going, like, that does sound overwhelming. Get me out. Some of you are thinking this sounds wonderful. Some of you are thinking that this is impossible. It's certainly not common today. Funny story, a couple years ago, my brother-in-law, my wife's brother, got married. And one of the biggest difficulties of planning any wedding is planning the guest list. Right? Who gets invited? Who doesn't get invited? Where is the line? If I invite this person, now I have to invite those five people. And it's, it's so complicated. And he had the hardest time communicating to his fiance, now wife, why his cousin's college roommate had to be at the wedding. Because she's family. Every, every, they're, they're family. They have to be there. Families like this are rare today. But they were the norm in the ancient world. They were commonplace in the ancient world. See, the culture in Jesus' day is what's known as a strong group culture. That means that people understood the well-being of the group as being more significant, more important than the well-being of the individuals that make up that group. And so within this strong group culture of Jesus' context, the group that had the person's greatest loyalty, greatest priority, greatest commitment was the family. And so this meant that members of a family willingly sacrificed their desires for the good of the family and for its reputation because the reputation of the family extended to all of the members of the family. And so if the family's reputation was regarded with honor, then all of the members of that family shared in that honor. And if a member of the family brought shame to the family, then all of the members of the family experienced that shame. And so they participated not only in trying to advance the family's reputation and do good and and prosperous things, but they also covered each other and protected each other and desired to protect the family from shame. That's probably what's happening here when Jesus' mother and his brothers go to get him because they say he's out of his mind. He's lost his mind. He's a crazy person. He's going to bring shame upon the family. Imagine that, Jesus bringing shame upon the family. He's going to bring shame upon the family. We need to go get him and take him away to protect the family's honor. And so, so his, his mother and his brothers come to get him. But, um, uh, and, and among the family, this, this, this strong group context, uh, among the family, the commitment to the family, the strongest loyalty within the family was specifically between siblings. So the fact that his brothers were there to go and and help him, they loved him, they're trying to care for him. And so today, we talk about sibling rivalry as though it's the norm. But in the ancient world, sibling rivalry was a great evil. It was a great problem that sibling loyalty was what was common in the first century. It was so strong that even when someone got married, it was not uncommon for their loyalty to still remain with their siblings. There's lots of interesting stories uh, about this throughout antiquity, throughout the ancient world. One that I find particularly amazing uh, is, is the story of Mark Antony. So Mark Antony, before he met Cleopatra, was involved in yet another tragic love story. The poor guy just couldn't, couldn't catch a break. So Mark Antony, uh, back then Rome was divided in two. And half of Rome, the half of the Roman Empire was ruled by Mark Antony. The other half was ruled by Octavian. And the two hated each other. And the two were at war with one another. But they also wanted there to be peace within Rome. So they brokered a deal. 
They brokered a marriage deal that, that Mark Antony would marry Octavian's sister, Octavia. Names were not creative back then. They're just Octavian, Octavia, it's just, it's just simple that way. Uh, so Mark Antony and Octavia get married and the, brought peace for a time to Rome, and the Roman people appreciated the, the peace that had been brokered. But Octavia said, regardless of the future of Rome, she said, I know my future is certain. I am going to be torn in two. I am going to be divided. And as as time went by, tensions continued to flare up in Rome. And rather than taking her husband's side, she goes back to her husband, or sorry, back to her brother, Octavian. And so this sibling loyalty, um, which is rare in our context, was expected than brothers and sisters fighting for one another, laying down one another's lives for each other, being absolutely committed to one another. The greatest loyalty in the ancient world was that among siblings. And in the Jewish context, this is extended not just to biological immediate family, but the Jewish people were supposed to look at everyone as brothers and sisters. They shared a lineage. They all descended from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and the 12 sons of Jacob became the 12 tribes of Israel. And so they all shared a lineage. They all shared a a, a, a heredity. And then in the law, God gives them commands to treat one another as brothers, to treat one another as siblings, to treat one another as family. And so Israel was to regard one another in this special, loyal relationship. And it's in this context that we need to understand Jesus' words. When he's told that his mother and brothers are there looking for him, he says, "'Who are my mother and my brothers?' And looking about those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, this would be shocking in any culture. But in the Jewish culture, it was scandalous. It's absolutely scandalous. And it's scandalous for a couple of reasons. One, it's scandalous because Jesus excludes his own mother and his brothers. He excludes his own biological family from this new family being created. I mentioned last week that this statement could possibly be understood by Jesus' opponents as either being insane or evil. It could be seen as insane to to distance oneself from their family would be to distance oneself from their primary source of community and identity. Family is who you call when you're in trouble. And so to distance himself from them would be foolish. It would be to put themselves in a very vulnerable situation. But worse than that, if Jesus was in fact distancing himself from family, he could be seen as being in violation of the commandment to honor his father and mother, which would be a sin, and the religious leaders could bolster their claim that he was in fact in league with the devil. It would be shameful. It would either be foolish or sinful and shameful. It's scandalous. When I was in high school, I got really big into The Doors, the band, for those of you who were around for that. I wasn't, but I was still into it. I think, in fact, the only book I ever started and finished in high school, my son needs to not listen to this, uh, is a biography on Jim Morrison and The Doors called No One Here Gets Out Alive. I'm pretty sure I didn't read anything else in high school. And I was shocked and, and just kind of grieved by this aspect. Jim Morrison had a terrible childhood. 
He had a rough upbringing, and he left the family as soon as he could, distanced himself from the family, alienated his family, and ended up becoming uh, a, uh, the, the, the lead vocalist for The Doors and had hit songs. And he was so alienated from his family that his younger brother... His favorite band was The Doors, and he had no idea that his older brother was the lead singer. And he loved their music. And then he found out that his brother was the singer. And if you know anything about The Doors' music, Jim Morrison has some awful things to say about his family. And what became his brother's favorite band now became a scandal. It became, it wounded him. It hurt the family. And we see this all the time in the world. We see people turn away from their families, reject their families. But in our weak group culture, oftentimes we we give people permission to do that because you got to do you. You just got to go follow your heart. You can't let anything hold you back. But in this strong group culture, to distance themselves from their family would be scandalous. And so the fact that Jesus excludes his family from this new work of God is scandalous. But the other reason is there's another group of people who are on the outside of this group. And Jesus excludes the religious leaders. Now, Jesus is the Messiah. He's claiming to be the Messiah from God to save Israel. And the scribes and the Pharisees have been holding down the fort for centuries. They've been praying for this day and preparing the people of God for the arrival of the Messiah. And so if anyone should be included in this new work, this new movement of God, it should have been them. They should have been first in line, but they're not included. They're on the outside. It's not only who is excluded from the family of Jesus that's scandalous, but also who is included. See, Jesus doesn't just exclude his biological family. He doesn't just exclude the religious leaders, but he includes sinners. He includes tax collectors and sinners and the generally insignificant. When those who would have been regarded as first in line are excluded, Those that society has cast aside, condemned, and ignored are the charter members. They're the original members of this family that Jesus is creating. And so Jesus' continual association with the marginalized and the spiritually impoverished continue to be scandalous to the religious elite. But to those who are included, it's grace. To you and I, who are labeled in the tax collectors and sinners and the generally insignificant oftentimes by the way the world looks at us. We are received, we are brought in, and that is grace. See, adoption into Jesus' spiritual family doesn't come through a spiritual heritage or our own religious resume. We are not owed relationship with Jesus as an inheritance from our Christian relatives or as payment for our Christian service. It is a gift of God's grace, holy and completely a gift. See, the disciples, they didn't do anything to earn this. They didn't do anything to deserve it. They're simply following Jesus. It's all they've done since he called them. Jesus called them and they followed. Jesus spoke and they listened. He instructed and they obey. And here, Jesus says, this is the will of God that they are following him, that they're believing in him, that they're trusting in him. John 6, 29 says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. See, there are many people 
who associate themselves with the church, associate themselves with Christianity, associate themselves with Jesus, who are merely culturally Christian. They're a part of this Christian culture, but have not yet fully given their own lives to Jesus. Whether that means they've been raised in the church or had grandparents who would take them to church on occasion, and so they they claim Christianity as though it were something that's transmitted through genetics. doesn't work that way. Not even Jesus' own biological family is included. And so apart from personally making the decision to follow Jesus, to trust in Jesus, we have no claim in the family of God. See, there's this thing going around in the world that God is the father of all humanity. And to some extent, that is true, that Adam descended from God in creation and that we've all descended from Adam. And so in a sense, there is that truth. But Jesus draws a line, in fact, with the Pharisees. He doesn't say that God is their father. He says, you're of your father, the devil. He says that, that you are following the lineage. You are following the spiritual heritage of the one who rebelled against God. And so the only way to actually be able to participate in the family of God that Jesus is bringing is to trust in the work that he has done. See, others may not believe that they were born into it, but like the Pharisees, they'll work and work and work at doing things to prove or to, to, to doing the right things in order to prove their justification. They're trying to live as their own saviors. They're trying to point to all of the things they're doing for God as proof that they belong to God, but deep down they have not actually trusted what Jesus has done for them. And so they're trying to save themselves by all of their religious activities, but they haven't given their hearts, they haven't given their lives to Jesus. See, the disciples, they do nothing to deserve it. They've got no spiritual heritage, right? They're tax collectors and sinners and generally insignificant people. They don't have the righteousness of the Pharisees, And yet those who are descended, who are related to him, and those who are the spiritual elites are excluded, and the disciples are included, and this is grace. The disciples don't even understand yet who Jesus is. See, this is another thing that we do in the church, right? That we will say that we are justified by our theology, that because I know the right thing about God, then I'm good. Right? But just because you know the right thing about God doesn't make you good, doesn't make you a Christian. The scriptures say that you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. The demons throughout the gospel of Mark are declaring Jesus to be the son of God. They know who he is and yet they are not with him. They are excluded from him. And so the disciples, they're with him, they're following him, but they don't have a full understanding either. There's going to be times throughout the Gospels when Jesus is shocked at their lack of understanding of his identity and mission. He's even going to call one of his disciples Satan for such a lack of understanding and trying to avoid Jesus from going to the cross. And so we're not saved by our theological understanding. Sound theology is important. Sound theology is good. We need to know who the God is that we are worshiping, but we're not saved by our theological understanding. What you know about God or how much you know about the Bible, even your ability to articulate sound doctrine will not save you if your heart is far from Jesus. Good theology is important, but we can't allow ourselves to be those of whom Scripture says we honor God with our lips, but our hearts are far from them. All 
of this inclusion into the family of God is grace. Neither familial descent nor our own efforts or knowledge can make us children of God. It's only by the grace of God that whoever believes is brought into his family, adopted by the king of the universe, whoever believes, whoever believes. I'm so thankful for this word right here in verse 35, whoever Because that means it doesn't just include the disciples, it includes all disciples. It includes everyone who would ever believe. Whoever believes is his brother and sister and mother. We are the family of Jesus. We are God's family. Now, how we hear this initially and how we understand this is going to be informed by our own experiences with our families. We come into this conversation with baggage, Whether it's good baggage or negative baggage, it's still baggage. Whether you had a good family or a a, a rough, difficult family experience, we're coming into it with baggage. We already have thoughts, feelings, and emotions associated with family. And so for some, the concept of church as family could cause trepidation and fear. You may want to resist relationships in the church because it's just another opportunity to be hurt. For others, you may have unrealistic expectations of the church. Maybe you are unprepared that there's actually conflict in the church. You know, if you're a part of the church long enough, like 30 seconds, there's going to be conflict. (laughs) Community is messy. Listen, sometimes when we start to plug into relationships in the church, we start to be more aware of other people's junk, and they start to be aware of us, and we're like, this is awful, but did you know that's beautiful? That's God bringing all of our ugliness into the light so that we can receive grace and we can love one another in spite of our issues, in spite of our sin. And so church is messy, community is messy, but messy isn't bad. Acknowledging the mess that exists is the first step to allowing God to clean up the mess. Maybe we're unprepared for conflict in the church or maybe we're discouraged when someone isn't as available as we'd hoped because the church is a family and in my family, everyone did all that I wanted at my beck and call. They were there and I've been told my whole life that I'm the greatest and that I don't do anything wrong and that I'm wonderful and that I'm God's gift to the world and I can be anything and I'm a superstar and I'm a hero and all of these things. And so we come into the church, the church is a family, great, more people to celebrate me. And then when they don't, we're like, you guys are lame, And so whether we have good experiences with family or negative experiences with our family, both can set us up for disappointment. Both can be this, cause this wedge to be driven between us and God's family. We're going to be tempted to see the flaws in the church and our brothers and sisters in Christ as either failures to be the family that we expected or justification for rejecting the possibility of family in the church. Both is going to lead to distance between us and the family of God. So what's the remedy? What is the remedy? Some of you have been following Jesus for a long time. You're like, yes, I know God is my father. We're the family of Jesus. I've heard this over and over and over again. Yes, that's my experience. What is the remedy? How do we experience the life and love and and communion within the family of Jesus? How do we, as Reality Carpinteria, experience the family of Jesus among us? So the answer is not found in a bunch of things that we have to do, right? This will get practical, 
But the answer is found in God himself. We need to trust and receive God as the divine family in and of himself, the triune Father and Son and Holy Spirit. We are not, uh, we will not experience the family of God apart from receiving God the Father himself. God is the model for family. That's why there's familial language in the titles of the Trinity, Father and Son. God is the model for family. Like any family, the culture of that family is set by the parents. And so experiencing the church as a family means that we need to receive and experience God as Father. Now, we just sifted through all of the baggage related to the word family. Now let's sift through all of the baggage related to the word Father. Because it's the same thing. Just like our understanding of family, there are going to be potential difficulties to understanding and knowing God as Father today. Father's Day is not always full of joy and fun memories of barbecues for people. Some of you had great relationships with your dad. Some of you had great relationships with a father who's no longer here. Some of you had great relationships with your dad. Some never knew your father. And some wish you never knew your father. We all have these different experiences and we cannot help but see God the Father through the lens of our earthly father. But God is not like your dad. No matter how good your dad is, no matter how bad your dad is, God is not like our earthly fathers. The role of father in the human realm is intended to reflect something about God himself, specifically his love and provision and protection and discipline and instruction and intimacy. And our fathers only reflect God in so much as they reflect him in these qualities, So we have a great opportunity as dads, you men in the room who are fathers, we have a great opportunity to reflect to our children who God is, but know that they will also be tempted to see your flaws and project those on God as well. And we only reflect God so long as we reflect him in his goodness, so long as we reflect him in who he actually is. And so we can't judge God based on our dad's failures or his successes. Rather, we need to judge our father's actions according to God's character. See, there is a metaphor there. There is something about the earthly father that reflects God the father, right? But the metaphor works the other way around. We understand our dads based on God. We do not understand God based on our dads, unless it accurately reflects who he is. And so God, our father in heaven, is a generous father, This is the word that I want to key on for us. I think God is a generous father. All that we have has been provided for us abundantly. He's made this world full of life and abundance and enjoyment. And he is is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness to his children. He didn't even withhold his own son, but sent him to be the sacrifice for the sins so that we might live in paradise with him as a family, to live in paradise with him eternally. All that we need, God has generously given us. His generosity knows no bounds. He delights in giving his children good gifts, but most importantly, he delights in giving his children himself. He delights in giving himself to his children, his time, his attention, his presence. 
And this good and perfect heavenly father has adopted us into his family. Talk about generosity. Not just like, hey, come into my home. Not just, hey, I'm gonna treat you like family, but I am going to legally make you my own. You are now an heir. The generosity of our father. We get to call the creator of the universe father. And when we come to him, We come to him as the one who sees us as a beloved child. He looks at you and calls you beloved. He looks at you and loves you and cares for you. He wants to provide for you and protect you. He's constantly available to you. We can run into the Father's arms and know that we will be loved and receive mercy and grace from him. We can find comfort and security in him. You are beautiful to him. Regardless of what you have done, regardless of what has been done to you, God God looks at you and sees something that he calls beautiful, sees something that he calls wonderful, sees something that he calls son, daughter, you're mine, you belong to him. He loves you and he delights in you. And until we receive this eternal love of our father in heaven, we are never going to experience family in the church here. Unless we acknowledge that God is Father and receive him as Father and recognize that all of those have received him as Father and we're invited into this same family, we're never going to experience family in the church. But it's not just receiving God as Father. We also need to recognize that God is also the Son, Jesus Christ. These familial titles of father and son indicate that one of the primary ways that God wants to be understood and wants to be experienced, uh, wants us to experience our relationship with him is through the lens of family. And so Jesus, as the son of God, he's experienced this eternal intimacy with the father. And he is sent by the Father. The Father loves him. He loves the Father. And he is sent by the Father to carry out the Father's will perfectly. And Jesus is faithful in all that God asks him to do. If we look at this familial relationship and we see God the Father as being generous, then Jesus, God the Son, is faithful. His role as the Son is to be sent by the Father and do all that he asks. And though equal with the Father, he he submits himself to the Father. He submits himself to his Father's will and carries it out completely. He's faithful even unto death. This was his ultimate purpose in life. He is faithful. His faithfulness to God was his purpose in life. His faithfulness to God and his faithfulness to us. His sacrifice, which which God sent him to, to live his life for, to fulfill the law on our behalf, to be faithful to him according to the law, and then submit himself to death in his faithfulness to us, reconciles us to God so that we can experience him as father, so we can experience him as the father that humanity was always intended to. And then Jesus raises from the dead, proving his sonship, proving his lordship over all creation, and then pours out his spirit on all who believe. And so our belonging to the family of God is a work of the father and the Son and also the Holy Spirit. That God himself is this model for family. And so the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ. Scripture says that it's by the Spirit of God that his love has been poured into our hearts and by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The reason that we are children of God is not just because Jesus has done what he has done, but because the Spirit has united us to him. He's united us to the one and only son. We're united to Christ and our lives are inseparable from his. Think of it like a marriage. 
right? When two get married, the two become one. And what belonged to each individual now is shared by the marriage. So when I married my wife, she became the rightful owner of what belonged to me, which was a lot of student debt. That's just the way it works, right? And because I was married to her, all of these little companies that she has started, my wife is super crafty and super entrepreneurial, and she started these companies, which have inevitably paid off my debt. And I become the owner of those things that, she, that belonged to her. There is not a better feeling in this world than marrying someone who is out of your league, completely out of my league. And so when we come to Jesus, when we are united to Jesus, what belongs to us becomes his, namely our debt, our sin. And what belongs to him becomes ours, eternal life, intimacy with the Father, righteousness, holiness, you name it. Ephesians 1 says that we have received every spiritual blessing in Christ. We don't just come to Jesus and then Jesus goes, hey, buddy, now that you have me, like I'm going to give you all of these things. No, we come to Jesus and we get Jesus. And because we're united to him, everything that belongs to Jesus, including sonship, belongs to us. This is why scripture calls us co-heirs with Christ. Because of him, we become children of God. We become heirs. See, as God's family, we're invited to experience the love and intimacy eternally existing within the three members of the Trinity. This is what Peter calls partaking of the divine nature. That the divine nature is this eternally existing love between the God three in one. And God's love and life is opened up. And by the Holy Spirit, we are brought into that. And we can experience the love of God that is eternally existed between the members of the Trinity. And so it's through faith that you're a child of God. It's through faith that we are the family of God and it's only believing and receiving the good news that we can truly experience the church as family. See, we can come in here today and say, yeah, this is my church family. And church family is kind of this like category that we put off to the side. Like, here's my friends. These are my coworkers. This is my biological family, my nuclear family, you know, and then this is my church family over there. Like, they're they're a part of my life too, but that's my church family. But the way Scripture articulates our relationship to the Father and our relationship to Jesus and our relationship to the Holy Spirit and our relationship with one another is as priority. This is the all-encompassing family. These are the primary relationships that we will have with one another. That, That second to our loyalty to God is loyalty to God's family. This is a powerful, beautiful, and almost impossible thing. Impossible to do it perfectly. But this is what God has called us to. And it's only in believing and receiving God and who God is that we are empowered to live like a family. And so if this is who God is, if he is the model for family, then what does it look like to live as a family? What does it look like for Reality Carpinteria to live as a family? Well, we live as God lives. We live among one another as God lives. The Father is self-sacrificially generous. 
The Son is faithful to the end, and the Spirit unites us and invites us into union with Christ. And so if we apply this to our relationships with our church family, we can say that living as a family requires that we reflect God through our generosity, our fidelity, and our hospitality. I'm going to look at these three things before we close. First, generosity. See, membership in God's family cost us nothing. It's free. Grace is free. But the more we grasp what we have been given, the more we are free to give our lives away. One of the reasons that we struggle often with generosity is because we fail to recognize that everything we have is a gift from God, that God is a generous Father. He has given us everything, and we fail to recognize that absolutely everything we have is a gift from God. Now, some will say, Don't, no one ever gave me nothing. Like, I worked hard for everything I have. Good. You should work hard. That's what humans were made to do. Humans were created to work, to rule and subdue the earth, to cultivate the ground and promote flourishing. And so in your occupation, so long as you are promoting human flourishing, whether that's through, through farming or an agriculture or accounting or ministry or food service or whatever industry you are in, even if it's in the entertainment industry and music and all of these things, you are you are promoting culture and human flourishing and you're bringing good things into people's lives. You are reflecting the abundance of God who wants to give his children good gifts. Whatever you are doing, you are working, which is what humans were made to do. And as a farmer works the field and, and the ground produces fruit, we work our fields, so to speak, and God produces fruit through our work and provides for us. He provides for us through us being faithful to what he has called us to do. So you're working hard. Great. You are glorifying God in your hard work just by working diligently for him. And as you work diligently as a human being, God provides for you. The problem is that this is where we often leave things. But God has called us to reflect him, not only in working hard, but uh, to reflect him in our generosity. Sometimes God's provision is not only to us, but it is to be through us. So that we can reflect the abundant generosity of God into the lives of others. If he didn't withhold his own son, but gave him up for us to usher in his kingdom, then we can give of our time and our resources to advance his kingdom in the world. We are called to reflect God in this way. And so as a family, we give self-sacrificially for the good of the family. Living as a family includes being generous as God has been generous with us. And so would you say, as you reflect on your experience with your church family, that you use your time, your resources, and your finances in such a way that reflects the generosity of God, the God who did not withhold anything from us? Are we contributing to the needs of our family by using the time and the skills and the finances that God has given us? Living as a family means living generous lives, lives that are marked by pouring out that, that which God has poured into us. But living as a family requires not just generosity. This isn't just about like, well, this is my family, so I got to give all this stuff. It's not just marked by generosity, but it also requires our loyalty and fidelity to one another, to prioritize 
one another. Jesus was perfectly faithful to the Father on our behalf. He was completely faithful to God and to us. Perhaps the greatest way this is demonstrated, the greatest window into this in the life of Jesus is the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus did not want to go to the cross. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he got on his knees before God and said, if there is any way this cup can pass away from me, to to, to not have to drink this cup, yet not my will, but your will be done. How many times have you been in a situation in life where you're like, God, I don't want to do this, and you're faced with the choice of whether to do it or to not do it. Jesus says, God, I don't want to do this, but I know what you're accomplishing. I know what you're doing. If there's any other way to reconcile humanity to yourself, God, may it be so. But if I must, if this is the only way, then I'll gladly drink the cup. I will gladly go to my death. Jesus, not wanting to do it, pleading with God, was faithful to God's will regardless to the end. It was his loyalty to God and to those that God would save through his sacrifice that kept Jesus marching to the cross. And in his loyalty to the Father and in his loyalty to you, you have been invited into the family of God. It's not about this whole church family, being a family, all of this stuff. It's not about trying harder to be faithful. It's not about trying harder to do, you know, these things, but about receiving Jesus' loyalty to you and you are then free to pursue loyalty to God's family. If, you, if God has proven his loyalty to you, if God has proven that there is nothing that will stop him from doing for you what you need, then we are freed up. We can hold our lives with with open hands and, and we're freed up to serve and to give and to, to, to love one another the way we have been loved because we just pour out that which God has poured into us. And even when we fail in our commitment to Jesus or when we fail in our commitment to his family, he's faithful and just to forgive us and empower us for the next opportunity. Can our participation in the family of God, be described as faithful and trustworthy? How would you define your fidelity to your church family? How would you describe what place of priority your church family falls into? Jesus didn't allow anything to interfere with us becoming a member of the family, and so we have the opportunity to regard the family of God the way he did. He regarded you worth dying for. Look around. Every single person in this room, Jesus has proven is worth dying for. Not just another human life, but the life of God. God deems you worth dying for. God deems the person sitting next to you worth his blood. If it is worth the blood of Christ, then they are worth yours. There is no greater priority in relationship than this family that God has called us to. He says it's worth dying for. And so living as a family requires generosity and fidelity, but last but not least, it requires hospitality. I had the opportunity uh, to go to Italy with Santa Barbara City College when I was 19, way too young to be on my own in Italy. And uh, while I was there, I decided that I would visit some family. My mom had some family who still lived up in northern Italy. And so all I knew was that they're in this small town and that they own the only gas station in town. And so I got on a bus 
and I got, took this bus from, uh, uh, sorry, a train, then a bus from Florence to this little tiny town called Crespano del Grappa, and I get off the bus right at the gas station. And I'm like, oh, great, this is the gas station. But I showed up in the time in Italy when everything shuts down from noon to 4 p.m. Uh, because they like to rest. Um, and, uh, and so I show up, and there's one guy filling up his tank, and I'm standing there. I've got, like, a suitcase, and he's like, where are you going? And I said, I'm looking for Rudy Melchiori. This is the name of my, my mom's cousin. And he goes, oh, I'll, you know, I'll take you there in, in Italian. And so he walks me to his house, knocks on the door, this guy opens the door, they say something in, in Italian, and this guy just looks at me. Like, who in the world is this guy? And I explained to them in the most broken Italian I, I knew that I was his cousin from Italy. And he gets wide-eyed and brings me into the house and gets on the phone and calls my mom's cousin and is talking to them about, I'm like drawing a family tree about how I'm related and all of these things. And then immediately they just bring out all this food. And then after dinner, they take me to their guest house at the foothills of this mountain overlooking this little town and they give me the keys. And I'm staying in this guest house with them. And they come and they pick me up every morning and they take me to breakfast and they show me around town. I saw the place where my great-grandparents got married I saw the bell tower that my family apparently commissioned. Like, my family is a big deal in this tiny little Italian uh, country town. And they, I was family, instantly, just instantly welcomed in. See, the, the Spirit of God shows us more than hospitality. Hospitality is about entertaining. Hospitality is about inviting somebody into your home and, like, giving them a good time. But we've been adopted. We've not just been invited into the house, but God has given us the keys He's given us the keys of the kingdom. He's invited us in. He's made it our home. He has made us children. And so hospitality is not just about entertaining guests. Hospitality here at Reality Carpinteria is not just about that couple minutes after, after worship before the announcements when we say like, oh, hey, good to meet you. Like, yes, that's hospitality, but that's just scratching the surface of what hospitality means. Hospitality is about opening more than our homes. It's about opening our lives to one another. It's about being known by one another and pursuing to know one another. It's allowing someone to truly know us, the good, the bad, the ugly. Hospitality is is about providing a space for others to be known by us. It's about unity and intimacy and love and this bond that's only possible by the power of the Holy Spirit that unites each of us individually to Christ and makes us a family. And so living as a family means that we are involved in one another's lives. Not just on Sundays when we have to be in the same place at the same time, but it means that we open up not only our homes, but our lives, knowing one another and being known by one another. And Jesus models this in this passage perfectly. He opens up his his entire life. He opens up his family, his relationship to God, and invites the disciples in. And then he pours his life out for all who believe, inviting them, even though it will cost him everything, invites us into his family. We will never be able to share our lives with one another the way God calls us to or welcome one another into our lives or our homes as though they belonged there unless we receive and believe what Jesus has done to invite us into intimacy with himself and with the Father by the power of the Spirit. We're not just guests in the kingdom of God. We are sons and daughters and therefore also brothers and sisters. And so when Jesus says these words and makes the disciples his brothers and sisters, he is also making them siblings. He's making us siblings. And in that context, who has our greatest loyalty? Our brothers and sisters. 
in the context that Jesus is preaching into. And so we don't often enjoy the blessing of family in the church unless we ourselves are regarding the church as family. Many want to wait until someone else starts acting like family before they start living like family. But we all have a responsibility and God has already proved himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so it's by receiving him that enables us to live this way. Don't wait for the person sitting next to you to start acting the way they should before you start acting the way that you should. Let's commit to loving one another and being a family and being loyal to one another and being generous with one another and being hospitable to one another. And church, living this way will be absolutely revolutionary. It's a sign to the world of the goodness of God. There's a long history in this church of mission and evangelism and church planting and overseas, reaching unreached people groups, all of these things, and it's beautiful. This love for the lost is a beautiful thing, but it has to come from an overflow of our love for one another. Jesus said that it would be our love for one another that would be evidence to the world that the Father sent the Son. That our love for one another is the greatest witness to the gospel and the greatest evidence of its power. When the church loves one another, when the church lays down their lives for one another, people who they otherwise have no relationship with because of the unity they have in Jesus, they lay down their lives for one another. It is an evidence to the world that the gospel is true. It's an evidence to the world that what we're preaching is not just words, but there's power and the Holy Spirit accomplishes it. And it's only possible when we believe and receive what God has done to make us a family. Through faith, the Holy Spirit empowers us to live this kind of generous and faithful and hospitable life. Church, we're in a unique season in our church history. God is doing something beautiful. There has been signs throughout these last several months that the community that God is establishing here at Reality Carpinteria is a beautiful thing. There's a lot of relationships being built. There's a lot of new connections being made. There's a lot of love being shared. And all I want to say to this end is is what we're talking about today is an opportunity to put handles on what God is already doing. God is already doing this. And, it's, and, and, and we need to understand it's what he's doing. We need to understand that it's a part of his plan for us. But we can also put handles. We can also make practical. Okay, what is God calling me to do with these relationships that I'm making? What is God calling me to do in my responsibility to the family that he's inviting me into? He's calling me to live generously, to live faithfully, and to live hospitably. And as I do, as I receive God's generosity to me, as I receive God's faithfulness to me, to love me and die for me and save me and reconcile me to himself and invite me into his kingdom, then I can pour out my life into those that he brings into my, uh, into my space. He can, I can pour my life out. I can be generous with them. I can be faithful and committed to them because God's been faithful and committed to me. And I can, I can be hospitable and open my life and, 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 and enjoy who they are as well because of what God has done. And he, he does this. God does this in us, not only because he loves us, but because he wants us to follow him in it, laying our lives down for the family of God. Jesus laid his life down for us, and so we can serve one another and love one another and pursue one another self-sacrificially. We must do this as a church. It is what God is calling us to do, and it will be a sign to the world that he is who he says he is, that he's done what he's said he's done, and that anyone who believes, whoever believes, 
will be invited into that. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you are who you say you are. God, that you are who you say you are and that Jesus has done what the scriptures have said that he has accomplished. God, we thank you that you regard us as children. We thank you that you love us, that you've laid your life down for us, Lord. We love you and we want to live a life as family. We want to live a life as brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, loyal to one another, hospitable to one another, generous with one another, Lord. We don't know how to do it all the time, but we ask that you would empower us and lead us and that you would establish your family in this church. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.